think of the Pharisees who looked at Christ and said, does this man think he's greater than Abraham? And make no mistake, Abraham is great. But we cannot consider Abraham to be so great that it detracts or, or subverts our attention from the greatness of God. I'll say that again. We, we, we need to look to Abraham as an example, as someone God used, and he is great. But he cannot be considered so great that he distracts us from the greatness of God. I think that's such an important distinction to make because I don't think Abraham would want to be considered that great. And I have to ask, what is the text trying to tell us about Abraham and his relationship with the Lord? What does the text want us to know? It's interesting, when you ask certain questions of the text, you get different kinds of answers. The body of text we're looking at, as we observe Abraham, is called Torah, or really a, a Hebrew word that means instruction. It specifically identifies the first five books of the Bible. The first five books have a different feel to them than some of the other parts of the Bible. And what we need to do is tune our ears to ask the right questions and to hear what this text is saying. I like to, I like to uh, compare the Torah to a ball of Play-Doh. It's like something you can sit there and look at, and it can be different colors and different shapes, but you really don't get a lot out of it until you dig your hands into it and do something. The text is like that. It gets messy. It demands interaction. It was written in such a way that you need to read it well. All that to say how you read a text is quite important. So I want you to keep that in mind as we, as we look at the story of Abraham today, that we are dealing with a specific genre of text that wants you, the reader, to dig in and get messy with it, to ask certain questions of it, to inquire. Scripture's the only text out there that demands the reader to question it and challenge it and grapple with it. And we're gonna see an, a, a quite tangible example of that with Abraham today. But it goes further than that. Torah demands that you put yourself into the story. A good reading of the Bible says you can't do that in all circumstances. Some texts are for a certain time and a certain people and for you to read in a certain way. But other texts want you to see yourself in the narrative. That as you read about Abraham or other important figures in the Torah, you should ask, what would I do? Or how does what's happening here impact me? But an important question I'm really gonna sit on today is, why did that person say that? Torah rewards a reading like this. And I wanna show you how. Whenever uh, someone says something or does something, ask yourself, why did that person say or do that thing? You'll find that you get very interesting things coming to your mind and your heart as you read in that way. We got quite a body of text this morning. We have almost four whole chapters of Genesis to cover in such a short amount of time. So here's what we're gonna do. We're all, we're all gonna read all of it together so that we can just soak it in. No, not at all. <laughs> Matter of fact, I have to almost do the opposite of that. Um, we're gonna do a little bit of touch and go in these four chapters because I think 
you know, at first that was intimidating. How do we cover so much text in so little time? But the more you kind of read a text, the more you come to realize that long stories have simple truths. We're going we're gonna to bounce around a little bit, but I, it all fits together. It's all trying to share a simple truth. I want to go ahead and actually put this up for you guys to see. There's a bit of a, a network that we're going to follow for these four chapters. Uh, so keep this in mind as we kind of work our way through all this, all this text. Uh, Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah will act on their own. We're going to see that in just a second. God reaffirms his promise that we've talked about in the weeks past. And then right here in the middle is where we're going to camp. They laugh. Following that, we get God fulfills his promise and Abraham and Sarah's action is redeemed. We're getting way ahead of schedule here, but what I'm trying to tell you is uh, to keep this on your mind as we look at the story. Torah is meant to be read in such a way that sometimes you know the conclusion when you begin to read. In light of this, the story continues. Let's pick up with Abraham and Sarah, starting in chapter 16. We're starting in a very interesting place here. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. And we're not just going to do a straight reading. I'm going to cherry pick a little bit in light of the body of text we have. I want to jump us right down to when Sarah says, the Lord has kept me from having children. The Lord has kept me from having children. When did the Lord say that? How did Sarah come to that conclusion? It's such a rough start to this chapter. A proclamation, the Lord has stopped me from doing this. We continue right on down into the next verses. She points at Abraham. You are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I know we're skipping important tidbits, and we're going to get to those. But what I, what I want to expose here is uh, just to ask a question. Does this sound familiar? Think earlier on in Genesis, a few chapters back. Cha uh, Genesis chapter 3. Does this model sound familiar? The Lord doesn't want me to have something. I took the thing. It's your fault. Is that sounding familiar? It, it harkens way back to the start. We get several parallels with the story of Adam and Eve here. The, the very origin place of the problem of sin. And here we have Abraham and Sarah. They're taking matters into their own hands. They've decided to act purely on their own, apart from God. And that made them come to some very bizarre conclusions. God doesn't want us to have this. And when they take it, they turn against each other. It's such an interesting paradigm. What I really want to focus on, though, is verse 16 here. Chapter 16, verse 16. This is perhaps one of the most important lines in the chapter, and you might think that confusing when I read it. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. To bring you up to speed in the story, Sarah's convinced that she can't have a child. God disallows it. So basically what Sarah says to Abram is, I have a slave woman, Hagar. You can have a child with her, and that way we can receive the promise from God. So that's what they do. And it doesn't quite go out that well. Sarah points fingers at Abram, saying, this was a bad idea. How could you let this happen? 
And uh, we get down to this last line. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So I want to ask the first question of our, of our text today. Why is that important? I don't know if you've noticed up to this point in Abraham's journey, but his age is brought up a lot. How old he is when certain things happen uh, is a point that the text continues to bring to light. I realize I can take this off. Why is his age important? I think that's a question I want to pocket, actually. It can have an answer now, but boy, I think the payoff will be better at the end. I want to go to chapter 17. We're going to move briskly here. If we could keep that chart up here on the screen for, for a bit. Chapter 17. God sees what's happened. Abraham and Sarah have acted of their own accord. They've gone their own way. They've done their own thing. God takes notice. When does God take notice? What does the first verse of chapter 17 say? When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. It's been a while. It's been a while since Abraham and Sarah acted on their own accord. 13 years later, God's stepping in and saying something about it. But the age comes up again. We're following their progression, how old they're getting on their journey. I have to ask again, why is that important? What does their age have to do with anything? But in this moment, God reaffirms the promise he gave to Abram in Genesis chapter 12, kind of where we started this whole journey. We're going to take a look back at that. God says, whoa, remember where we started. And I want to read a small snippet of that. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. These are reminiscent of the words from chapter 12. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. The repetition means something here. It's, it's repeated again and again. And many people shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant. I want to stop there now. Where do we fall in this story? Remember, in Torah, we want to put ourselves in the story. And we're being openly invited right here to do that. An everlasting covenant, the text says, you and your descendants, the text says, start wondering where you fall in as we continue the story. We've rapidly progressed here, but I really want to fall in the middle. Sometimes thinking like this when you read the Old Testament is rewarding. Authors of the Old Testament often think like this. They think in such a pattern where they build up to something and then they show the results of that thing. So here right in the middle, what happens? They laugh. Many of you may have heard the story where Sarah laughs, but did you know Abraham laughs too? Sometimes that's kind of glossed over. It's right here in chapter 17. Abraham laughs at this promise. Lord, are you really going to make me a great nation? Are you really going to give me children in my old age? There's the age again. Do you hear it? It comes up again and again. 
we're following how old Abram gets, and he's now bringing this up to the Lord in this covenant conversation. Lord, I'm too old for this. Abraham laughs. We continue through that, though. Abraham believed the Lord and accredited it to him as righteousness. And we move on. Notice God didn't say anything about Abraham's laughter, except you're right, I am going to do this thing. God doesn't penalize Abraham for laughing. He doesn't look down at Abraham for laughing. He just affirms the promise and moves on. Other questions to ask here, back on this topic of how great is Abraham, because we just got a nice glorifying statement for him. He believed the Lord and accredited it to him as righteousness. Something of a model for all of us. But he laughs. Let's go to 18. I actually want to read this because this is what I do want to camp on for a second. Let's, uh, if you have it open, let's all together uh, take a special look at chapter 18, starting at verse 9. I'm just going to read a few verses. I want you to ask questions here. As we read this text, ask yourself at least two questions. Why did this person say that thing? So when something is said, ask, why was that said? And the other thing is, where do I fit in this? Where can I be seen in this, personally? Ask yourself those two questions as we read. They said to him, and this is in reference to the Lord visiting Abram, or Abraham now. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? Let's stop there. Why did God ask that? Where is Sarah your wife? If God's divine, he would know where Sarah is. And in the ancient world, it's considered rude to ask a question like that when you're being hosted. In this context here, the Lord is visiting Abraham uh, in a very tangible way, representing three individuals. There's so much that could be said about that, but I want to move to a, a different point. But the Lord is, is visiting Abraham, and Abraham is acting as a host, uh, treating God as a guest. And one of the first things God says is, where is Sarah? Strange question to start out with. Pin that question, because we're going to get to that. Let's keep reading. And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Stop there again. Why did God ask that question, where is Sarah? Perhaps so Sarah could hear. But also perhaps so that you today, the reader, can hear what's about to happen. Consider that. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. There it is again. We don't even have a number this time. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So, Sarah laughed to herself. There's a few translations of this. Depending on the version you're using, you might have what I just said, that Sarah laughed to herself. A different translation, which I think is much more true and preferable, would be Sarah laughed within herself, or Sarah laughed internally. The word used there in the original text is inward parts. She laughed within her inward self. I struggle to wonder if this was even a chuckle in that moment. 
I wonder if she was just going about her business in the tent and internally she thought to herself, that's a ridiculous statement. Let's keep going. The story continues. So Sarah laughed at herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Remember, she's in the tent. She's not talking to anybody. This represents her inward thought. The Lord said to Abraham, let's go back outside the tent now. Why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? What an interesting conversation. It's leading up to a very unique point. One that I think deserves a slide up here. The next line here says, is anything too hard for the Lord? From the very moment God shows up on the scene to question uh, Abraham and Sarah, asking where Sarah is, this was the point he was trying to make. He did not make this point when Abraham laughed, but he is now making this point when Sarah laughs. Abraham did think the promise was ridiculous. How can I have a child in my old age, Lord? An open question, an open statement saying, Lord, this is absurd. But you can do it, right? And the Lord says, yes, I can. But here in this moment, we have somebody isolated, thinking in their heart, this is ridiculous. How does she handle it? God continues, at the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. The Lord responded, no, you did laugh. I like to think of this as one of the most relatable interchanges in the whole Bible. This is basically the biggest yeah, huh, nuh-uh conversation I've ever heard. It's, I had to read that a few times because I couldn't picture God saying, yeah, you did. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. It's, it's such a strange thing for God to say. And I think that highlights all the more how we should ask questions of this. Why does God say that now? This whole conversation is leading to some big truth, some big lesson. And that lesson is this. The more ridiculous something is, the more glory God gets from it. When something is absolutely absurd and undoable, and then God does it, glory is amplified. When Abraham laughed at God, he was accrediting glory to God. Lord, this is ridiculous, but I believe you. When Sarah laughed at God, it was something else. She didn't confront the Lord with it. Do you see the difference? Sarah in the tent, in her heart, said, this is ridiculous. And then she lied about it. So where people like to go with this passage is they like to start condemning Sarah. They like to say, oh, Abraham was the faithful one and Sarah's not the faithful one here. That's not the case. We're going to see at the end of this that that's just not the case. What is happening here, though, is that Sarah, in keeping her thoughts to herself, is denying the Lord an opportunity to be glorified. Do you see the, the, the difference in that dynamic there? Abraham, thinking something was ridiculous, brought it up in order that the Lord might be glorified. Sarah shied away, and the Lord wasn't about to accept that. So when the Lord shows up, Lord, the Lord says, where is Sarah? I can be glorified in how she thinks this is ridiculous. 
he wanted to pull that out. Because in Sarah's mind, and the way she was thinking, God could see glory. Another note here, in camping on this. You ever wonder uh, the magnitude of what Sarah just laughed at? She wasn't just laughing at the fact that she couldn't have a son, or so she believed. She wasn't just laughing that she was so old and she didn't think God could do this through her. She laughed at something bigger. Isaac, her son to come here in the, in the coming chapters, has a whole genealogy. Oftentimes we skip over those uh, when we read our Bibles. They are long and they are tedious, but they are so important. And this is why, right here, when Sarah laughed at the promise God just made, she unknowingly laughed at the entire redemptive plan that God was putting into order. Because who comes from Isaac, ultimately? From Isaac is the lineage of Christ. When Sarah laughed, she had no idea what she was laughing at. It kind of adds a different taste when God says, no, you did laugh. She was clueless as to what blessing and what plan the Lord had in motion when she when she laughed in her heart. And the Lord wasn't about to let that go. These words, no, you did laugh, would get written down for us to read and for us to reflect on. For time's sake, I want to push forward because there's so much more. Keep the age in your mind. Push forward. Let's actually go back a slide here. We have... Abraham and Sarah act on their own. God reaffirms his promise with them. And then they laugh. And then we start the other, the other trend. We move from the middle here. We work our way back out. Genesis 21, God fulfills his promise. This one is shocking. And sometimes it's easy to miss how shocking it is. Let me just read it. I'd read it at the start of 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God spoke to him. We just got two verses that very matter-of-fact-like describe the previous chapters that, fought, that, that preceded it. All the, the reaffirming, the hassle, them taking matters into their own hands, them trying to do it their own way, we just got two verses to summarize. This is the most this is the most exclamatory statement that could be made in such an under, I struggle to find words for it, honestly. It is, it is the understatement of the millennia. Basically, what we get here is God, or the, the writer here in the text saying, so God did it, he promised he would do it, and he did it, let's move on. The question here is, did you, the reader, doubt that, that that would happen? We go through all these chapters hearing God's promise again and again and seeing Abraham and Sarah's failures. And it leaves us wondering, so God's going to make good on his promise, right? Well, of course he is. Knowing the ending influences how we read the story sometimes. We didn't need some big explanation here to really show how wonderful this was because God's faithful. Matter of fact, God is so faithful 
that in our unfaithfulness, his faithfulness rises higher. In the way that Abraham and Sarah showed that their unfaithfulness took them over, God's faithfulness reigned true. So it happens, is basically what it says. And at the very time God said, verses 1 through 5 here, at 100 years old, there's the age again. And moving forward, our final point. There's more. What about Ishmael? What about the child that they had when they were acting of their own accord? Sarah was convinced she couldn't have a child, so they did their own way. Abraham took Hagar and had Ishmael. God shows up and says, no, I'm going to give you a child through Sarah. God fulfills the promise and Isaac is born. So now there's two children. What about Ishmael? Here we see a different side of God. This wasn't a part of God's promise, but God comes through with it. Listen to what Sarah says in verse 10. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman, Hagar, with her son, Ishmael, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. Now that God has went through on his promise, Sarah is content with Isaac. But what of Ishmael? We get a different response from God compared to what Sarah just said. Verse 20. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. There's, again, so much that could be said about this dynamic. But the ultimate point we want to make here is that where Abraham and Sarah were unfaithful, God was faithful. Not only did God come true on his promise, but he redeemed their actions too. What about the age? I keep bringing that up. The age continuously comes up in this passage because I think it's trying to tell us something. As the number rises, our doubt in the Lord as readers may increase. Well, time is getting on further and God still hasn't done what he promised yet. Oh, they're this old now and God still hasn't done it. The suspense is building. Oh, wow, they're approaching their 90s. Oh, they're taking matters into their own hands. They're doing this, they're doing that. They're approaching 100 years old. No error. As readers, we are invited into the tension that Abraham and Sarah were experiencing. We are invited into the tension. As readers of the text, we often want answers. We want the problem laid out in front of us. We want to know what God does to fix the problem, and we want the nice solution that God has, and then we glorify God. It's a generic formula that so many of us as readers tend to adopt. And it has its time and its place. But here, we're invited into attention. It's such a foreign concept for readers sometimes to think that Scripture isn't always about telling you an answer as much as it is about inviting you into what's happening. Sometimes it's sitting in tension that inspires growth. It's sitting in tension that makes you ask questions. 
Getting a quick answer skips so many stages sometimes. Unlike the Pharisees who say, is this man greater than Abraham? We should instead be asking, who is Abraham to God? And who is God to Abraham? Who are these people? What Torah tries to do is tell you who God is, how God works, what his character consists of. And by contrast, Torah tries to tell you who you are, what we try to do apart from God, what we can do with God. Torah tries to tell you the relational dynamic that's taking place. And relationships are messy. I have to reflect here on the laughter. It's a moment of vulnerability, I suppose, but hey, we're all a church family, right? Before I had Phoebe, before Sarah and I had Phoebe, uh, I would often witness other parents with their children. Um, maybe I was over at their house for dinner, or maybe uh, they came to visit and they brought their child. And sometimes the, the baby or the toddler was very disruptive. And sometimes I would catch myself thinking things like, whew, when they leave, they take their child with them and it's quiet. <laughs> I don't have to deal with that right now. And in my heart, sometimes I would laugh like, thank goodness that's not on my plate. <laughs> and then a time comes in life where I now have Phoebe. And during that process, those thoughts always came back to me. Well, I guess I'm accepting this huge responsibility. I'm adopting this lifestyle of interruptions and waking up in the night and always constantly thinking about another life that fully depends on me. And it made me feel scared and reclusive and introspective. And I struggled with what it meant to be a father. And now that I'm on the other side of that, I think differently. Not only do I not care about changing a dirty diaper, but I'm happy to do it. With Phoebe, I can look at her and I can say, the more I love you, the more I want to embrace your messiness, the more I desire to do that. It's inconsequential to me. And I don't want to stand here and defend the fact that I don't like ch changing dirty diapers, because I don't, who does? What I mean to say is, I'm happy to do it. And it makes me reflect on our Father. We are a messy people. We read Abraham here, who's a model example of someone who followed Christ, and he's a messy individual. God is happy to enter into that messiness with us. My laughter at other parents and their children inside my heart quickly turned around to praise. Leading up to the moment, I was scared. After the moment, I only felt blessed. We get two kinds of laughter here. Consider what Sarah says in chapter 21 when Isaac is born. Verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. As the age increased, the likelihood of something happening decreased. But God does not operate on our understanding. He does not operate on our time. Matter of fact, the older they were when this happened, the bigger the miracle it became. 
Do you see yourself in that, in that lesson? The more unlikely something gets, the bigger the blessing it can yield. The more painful a situation can be, the more you are equipped to glorify God. It turns the lessons of the world on its head. It makes no sense to the common person. It takes an action of God to reveal this. As I grew closer to having Phoebe, I, I mounted the responsibilities I'd have to take care of. And then after she was born, my worries were for nothing. I only praise God when I change a dirty diaper now. What a paradigm shift. There are two ways to laugh. There was the laughter Sarah had in the tent, the laughter in her heart where she lies about it, the laughter in her heart where she sees the ridiculousness and succumbs to it. Then there's the laughter Sarah has after the fact, the laughter that God gives her through Isaac, whose name, by the way, means laughter. He was named after that principle. Her laughter following Isaac's birth was completely different. It was only a laughter of joy. Today, there are two types of laughter. Today, when somebody hears the promise of the Lord, when somebody hears the good news, they laugh in one of two ways. They laugh in the way that says that's preposterous. That's ridiculous. How, how crazy. Or they laugh in the way that says, wasn't that ridiculous? Wasn't that crazy? Isn't it amazing? Friends, I, I want to ask, how do you laugh in your heart when you hear promises like these? When you hear things like, Christ died for you, simple biblical truth that has such an implication, do you sit there and you think to yourself, yeah, I know that. I've heard that for a while. Of course you're saying that you're up there with the podium. Do you think those things? Do you laugh in your heart? Do you believe those things up here but not down here? A mentor of mine once said, keep the head praying and the heart thinking. Do you know what God did for you factually but still chuckle in your heart? You may not know the answer to that. Think about it. Think about that. Dwell on that. That's what Torah asks. There's a place for head knowledge and there's a place for understanding gold nuggets in the text, but that is not what Scripture cares about. Scripture wants your heart. Scripture wants you to laugh in joy, not in doubt. As we begin to transition to communion this morning, I want to invite you to use that moment as a time to explore your own laughter. As you partake, do you laugh like something's impossible? Or do you laugh like everything was made possible? Where do you fall in how you experience the world? That I ask you to dwell on. And we'll transition now into
David Nonamarka reminded us that God is glorified in the seemingly impossible. The older Abraham was, the more amazing it was that he and his wife could have children. And yet, what's even more amazing than for a 90-year-old couple to have children is for someone to die and be resurrected. I mean, not just to old life. No, there are people who are resuscitated. But for someone to die and be resurrected to new life, that is amazing. That is a miracle. And that glorifies God. And we have the privilege to, um, to remember it this day because as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 17, the Lord's Supper is about, is about his death. He says, um, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if there is anyone who doesn't have these elements, please let us know. We can distribute these. So can you pour this in? So go ahead and take off the little seal on the bread. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, gave thanks for it, broke it, and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. Let's go ahead and open this little, little cup. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup together. Let's pray. Lord, how sweet it is, how sweet it is to partake of the bread and the cup and to be reminded of your power and your love for us. We were unworthy sinners, Lord. If we realize, if we only realize just how preposterous it is that a God should die for sinful people, Lord, we too would laugh. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so. We don't deserve it. We look forward to the day when we will be with you in your kingdom, Lord. How good that will be. Strengthen us, protect us in the meantime. Help us to remain faithful to you. Lord, may our lives glorify you. In this sinful world, we ask all of this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus.